And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back with another episode of the Startup Hustle. Um, today I'm the host, Matt Watson, and weirdly enough, we've done 700 episodes and done, I've been on two or 300 of the podcast as a co-host, but never actually as the host. So today is kind of a, a fun, weird moment in Startup Hustle history. Um, so today is my go, uh, guest, um, Tomas. Tomas, you want to say hi? Yeah, hey. So Tomas, with, uh, Tomas Campos with Spinwheel is here today and um, doing some pretty cool stuff and excited to learn more about that. Um, before we get started, though, I do want to remind everybody today's episode of Startup Hustle is sponsored by FullScale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. And you know that expression, always a bridesmaid, but never a bride? Uh, it feel, feels like me. Finally, <laughs> I'm finally the bride. I, I'm finally the host. So uh, pretty, pretty exciting. Um, I will be hosting shows every single week now, um, and I believe they're supposed to air on Fridays. Um, over the last... Um, well, last year, uh, Matt DeCourcy and I have been doing a series about how to start a startup. And so we've had weekly episodes about that. And maybe you've listened to some of those, Tomas. I have, but, yeah. And so uh, am I Am I your first one? Your yeah. Your first you're, official? So, yeah, you're my first official um, Oh, what uh, an honor, man. I'm, I'm excited. So excited to do this today. Actually, at Stackify, we had a podcast for a short moment in time. And uh, I did, I hosted a few there. But I've always been the co-host with, with Matt DeCourcy, so... Yep. Never the host. So excited to do that today. So um, thank you for for joining me that uh, for that today. So I guess to get us started, why don't you tell us a little about a little bit about your your uh, startup story here and and what your company does? Yeah. So I guess I'll start by just talking about Spinwheel. So yeah, at the highest level, Spinwheel is a debt management solution that optimizes how how borrowers see, understand, and manage their debt. Um, and doing that all from like the financial apps or services that they use the most. So we're a SaaS company. You know, uh, one of the key things that I wanted to focus on was how can I have the most impact possible? And when we were trying to make the decision of, hey, should we go and be a direct consumer app uh, or we should be a SaaS based B2B company and embed this into other uh, mm -hmm. apps, it was really clear that the second path going as a SaaS company B2B would be have the most impact. And that's really where it sort of all started from because it was, um, it was a, uh, a couple incidents that had happened with, with family members and, and close loved ones that really sort of opened our eyes to student debt and then more broadly consumer debt in the United States. And we said, Hey, we want to do something about it. And we felt that going the SAS route was the, the best way to do it. So is the goal to help those people understand the debt that they have or, or how to pay it or yeah, like, great. I, yeah, I think the best way I can say it is, you know, not all debt is bad. Sure. Uh, but unfortunately, too often in the US, Americans are stifled by the debt they have. So I think probably the 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 top use case or one of the use cases we see the most 
is when Americans are trying to get out of the debt that they're already mm -hmm. in, uh, you know, reduce their payments or to become debt free. And so we provide all of the tools and all of the, the, the capabilities to make that happen. Um, on the flip side, sometimes getting into debt, maybe for example, like buying a mortgage uh, or taking out you know, potential personal can give you the leverage you need to improve your financial outcome. Sure. And so we really kind of focus on debt. Exactly. Right. And so we really focus on all the tools that are out there to help Americans with their debt so that it doesn't become a burden. Right. Um, so some very, very specific use cases are the most important thing you need to do is just to kind of understand the debt that you have. And so it's kind of like seeing with, a credit report from that perspective, right? Yeah, exactly. Now, a credit report, they'll give you the, your top level information. And that could be things like, well, here's how much you owe and who you owe it to. And if you've been current on your payments. But if you're trying to actually understand your debt at a deeper level and then try to actually take some actions on it, you often need more information than you're going to get just on your credit report. Um, so a great example is if you take a look at student loan debt, for example, student loan debt is extremely complicated and is probably the most complicated consumer debt that's out there. So you've got uh, people who have anywhere from 10 to 12 loans across multiple loan servicers. And each Yikes. of these loans have their own interest rates, they have their own terms, they have their own repayment plans. And so understanding all that data is, the, is sort of like very first step to start making the right decisions around, should I pay it off earlier? Should I get on a different repayment plan? Uh, should I consolidate or refinance that debt? And so the approach that we've taken as a company is, it starts with being able to have the information and the data you need to, to have the understanding. And then we put all the tools in place to do things like making extra payments, making optimized payments, maybe refinancing or restructuring that debt, uh, or even potentially taking advantage of benefits that are offered by your employer, by your state, uh, or your local government to help you with uh, with your debt. So we provide all those tools in a sort of so, very, very simple API-based platform. So without these kind of tools, let's say it's my sister or whatever, and she has miscellaneous debt or whatever, how would she even know what debt she has and and how to pay it off the the, the best way or whatever? I mean, I guess unless she listens to Dave Ramsey every day and then figures yeah, it all right. out. Like what, how, how, how do people figure this out otherwise? Yeah, I mean, I think... You know, typically you have people who are maybe checking their credit score and when they get their credit score, they also get sort of a, a credit report. We'll tell them where their where their debt is at. Um, but unfortunately, that's not something that people do on a day to day basis. No. And so tracking their debt is typically like a, a side thought um, or an afterthought, which is interesting, right? Because if you think about the I always call it sort of like the household balance sheet in the United States. The household balance sheet, there's more debt on that balance sheet than there is savings and investment for the average American, right? But as you just mentioned, as we just talked about, people don't have these tools at their disposal to right. really make it easy for them to understand it. It takes a lot of work, right? So you either have to go out there and, and look at all the statements that you're getting from your credit uh, cards, your student loan debt, maybe your auto debt, and you have to kind of build your own spreadsheet. Now, there's great people like Dave Ramsey and others out there that are really helping you kind of do that. They'll help you build your own budget. and those. But that takes a lot of work. Um, at the same time, there have been some really great apps that have come out there. Uh, a lot of these sort of personal financial management apps that will help you understand your debt and help you get a, a better perspective on it. Unfortunately, you know, a lot of those today haven't had the right infrastructure to make it really valuable. So the best thing they kind of do is just say, well, here's sort of your credit report. And maybe that's some insights for you, but that's yeah. where it ends, right? There's no way to really kind of take action on it 
or do something about it directly in those. And that's where we want to change that. We want to embed those capabilities right where people use it the most. So you've you've built the infrastructure and infrastructure to help people understand what debt they have, maybe how to repay it, you know, what order to repay it and and facilitate a lot of that, right? But what, where have you had the most success integrating this platform then? Like what, what are your like great case studies right now of, of how, how the platform is being used? Yeah. So I, I think the one where we're seeing the most impact would be through uh, employer benefits uh, platforms. So specifically as it relates to student loan debt, uh, the federal government as part of the CARES Act when we were you know sort of back in March of 2020, when we're all sort of first dealing with the onset of the pandemic, they uh, passed some legislation that basically said that employers can make contributions to uh, towards the student loans of employees uh, as long as those employees had student debt that were on qualified plans. The vast majority of people who have student loan debt in this country are on federal student loans, uh, which is about like 92%. So most people will qualify for this. Uh, and so what we've seen is that a lot of these employer benefits platforms are using our technology to make it really, really easy for employers to tap into this and make these pre-tax contributions to help their employees out. Because believe it or not, student loan debt is one of the biggest reasons why people can't invest in their 401k, they can't save, and it causes a lot of stress. So so the Mm -hmm. employers win and the employees win, and we're really proud to be the technology that helps power a lot of these solutions that get offered to employers. So in the in the scenario you just described, is the employer basically giving the employee additional money um, that's 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 usually paying down the debt, or is it more along the lines of like a four hundred one k where it's like, hey, I'm going to put in four percent of my income to pay this off, or is it both? Yeah, it's um, it's a little bit of both, but the most prominent scenario is where the employer is making a contribution of let's say twenty five to hundred dollars a month directly towards the student loans for okay. their employees. And it's a tax-free benefit to the employee? Yeah, up to $5,250 is uh, tax-free per okay. year per employee. Okay. Well, that's awesome. So to to achieve that, though, do you have to – did you have to do a bunch of integrations with all these crazy payroll companies? And is that a big burden to get to get across? Yeah. So we, we, we took the approach of – integrating with the loan servicers. Uh, and that's where we okay. have sort of the, the big lift on our side is integrating with the loan servicers. We work with other companies that let's say work with the, that, that they do the integrations into the HR systems. They do the integrations into the payroll platforms and really kind of provide the turnkey solution for the employers. Mm-hmm. We're that technology that gets embedded into those. So that when it comes to those payments and making sure that you're paying uh, the money towards plans that qualify, we provide all that data and we provide all the capability to make that happen. Well, it sounds like the CARES Act and and other things that are going right on right now in the you know the industry and the job shortage and all these different things are, are probably helping you, right? These are some tailwinds that are helping your company that um, you couldn't really foresee, but have given you a boost, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've got companies now that you know hiring talent is harder than ever, and and these are the kinds of you know little bonuses they can give people to say, okay, it's another added benefit of working here, right? We'll give you a hundred dollars a month towards your student loan or whatever. And, and you yeah. can help facilitate it. So you guys are in the right place at the right time from that perspective. It sounds like to me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, as you mentioned financial, or I guess the term that, that has, uh, 
received a lot of uh, traction in the market is holistic financial wellness for your employees, right? Employees more than ever, especially with this sort of inflationary period that we're in now, you know, have a lot of concerns about their finances and anything that sort of employers can do to help them with that uh, increases loyalty, increases productivity, reduces churn. So it's a great outcome for both the employer and the employee. Uh, and we definitely uh, have seen that, you know, sort of, uh, you know, pick up over the last two years uh, as employers and employees have needed more support in this area. So what, what about employees that have uh, just miscellaneous credit card debt and stuff like that? Does, does your solution help them pay those down in a, an optimized way? Like, Hey, I want to take a hundred dollars yeah, out of my do. paycheck so I don't waste that money. It goes right out of my paycheck and goes towards this, or is that part of yeah, what we do. Uh, the, the technology supports uh, student loan debt. It also supports uh, credit card debt and we're launching auto and mortgage mm-hmm. very soon here. Um, but the, the whole goal is to provide that technology such that whether it's an employer, uh, whether it's a uh, you know personal financial management app, whether it's uh, you know financial advisory services, wherever the end user, wherever the borrower wants to receive this sort of uh, help to see, understand, and, and optimize their debt, we can provide the technology there. And, and that's really been our goal. Well, so it sounds you've you've been at this since 2019. So what what gave you the idea to to start this? And as entrepreneurs, we're all a little crazy to start companies. So I, <laughs> yeah. I definitely relate right with you. But what what was it that gave you kind of the original Nexus idea for this? So two things. One, we had uh, my co-founder had a, a broader thesis on consumer debt in the U.S. Uh, just that when we saw, and we've been in fintech for a really long time, and so when we looked at sort of the broader fintech landscape, there was a lot of investment, a lot of things happening on bank core banking, uh, savings, checking accounts, and then you know more recently with investments, things you know apps like Robinhood, but we hadn't seen anything of the sort of same scale take off on the consumer debt side. But when you look at that consumer debt, it's it's the it's the uh, aspect of most Americans' financial lives that that dominates everything else, and so we had that broader thesis. But it it really took sort of um, you know two events that hit closer to home for me, uh, where my family members uh, really started experiencing the burden of student loan debt in the U.S. And when I saw my sisters essentially go through that, I was I was um, inspired. To really do something about it, right? We had we had been sort of really investigating the space, but when that happened, it made it personal. And I think, you know, as you know, for for founders, having that personal, you know, yeah. attachment to a problem and having that passion to do something about it for the ones that you love uh, is a great great uh, recipe for a great business. And so uh, it really sort of things started unfolding from there for us, and we really started diving in and, and building the solution. So tell me, you said you've been in fintech for a while. What other, what else have you done in, in the past in, in fintech? Yeah, so I I spent uh, about a decade and a half prior to this just uh, deep, deep in, in payments. So when you look at fintech, there's a lot of different areas, but my specialty was really on the payment side of it. So, you know, my one of my earliest, um, earliest projects I got to work on was essentially attempting to build the fifth network. So when you think of the major payment networks out there, you've got Visa, MasterCard, Amex, mm-hmm. and Discover. Uh, and back in the the mid, uh, you know, mid to early two thousands, it was um, 
you know, there was a, a big drive to try and make payments cheaper or more affordable. And so I spent a big part of my early days building a payment network from scratch and learned, you know, fintech and payments and processing, um, you know, inside out. And so I had, you know, a great opportunity to do that early in my career. And then that sort of just continued as it went from that uh, to, you know, uh, different forms of commerce, different types of, uh, of payment vehicles, uh, different types of segments of customers, all the way from sort of like the, the, the underbank and unbanked. Uh, and so I got a, I got a lot of exposure to all that. And so that really shaped my perspective in fintech. Yeah. Fin- fintech's uh, definitely a booming industry and um, there's a lot of fintechs uh, startups in Kansas city too, at least there, there's a handful of them. And it seems like, you know, what the traditional banks have been doing for a long time. Now you've got these companies that are coming in, they're kind of peeling away one little piece of the business at a time. Right. And then kind of really optimizing it. That's and, right. um, like C2FO is one of the big companies here in Kansas city and, and they help, uh, basically companies that are paying other vendors, you know, helping the vendors collect the money sooner instead of it being, you know, net 30 terms are able to close that gap from net 30 and, you know, give the, the payer a slight discount to pay it early and, and things like that. So, um, and maybe for some large corporations, maybe banks were helping facilitate, you know, lines of credit and all these things right like that for, um, receivables and payables financing and whatever, but they've just created a system that does that perfectly and create a whole marketplace around it. And it seems like more and more the traditional banks are, are getting stripped away of, of all the different types of business they could do before. And, and now you've got crypto and DeFi and all this other stuff that's going on too. So it's a, it's a fascinating world, um, on the, the finance side these days. Do you do anything on the crypto side too? Uh, not yet, but stay tuned. We've got some really exciting stuff that we're going to be announcing uh, probably mid-year uh, when we bring really? to market. Really? As, as part of Spinwheel? That's right. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, um, you know, just to give you a little bit of a preview, one of the things that we enable right now is we, allo- we enable uh, loyalty point platforms to take their loyalty points and be able to convert those into payments towards uh, consumer debt. Okay. Um, it's actually a fantastic use case. Over 50% of, of the people who do this today are actually people who don't have debt. So like credit be, card points? Uh, it could be credit card points. It could be points to your favorite, let's say, grocery program, things like that. And so and using you know, we've launched That's that. really cool. It is. It is really cool. Yeah, it's a fantastic great. use case. And like I was saying, 50% of the points being spent are from people who actually don't have the debt themselves. They're doing it for a loved one, like a son mm. or a daughter or a niece or nephew. Uh, so it's got pretty, pretty big appeal. We're, we're really excited about that. And so when you think about what we've done with sort of like that point space, there's, you know, some really good opportunities that we see on how that can extend sort of like the broader crypto, uh, area as well. Yeah. The whole financial market stuff right now is really fascinating to me. Um, so just a reminder, today's episode of startup hustle is sponsored by fullscale.io, helping you build software teams quickly and affordably. Um, so that, that got me wondering how, how do you guys build your software um, out in Oakland? What, what's it like hiring software developers out in the Bay Area? And, uh, <laughs> it's how competitive. Is, how is that struggle? I, I always feel like the the worst place I would ever want to be as a startup would be in the Bay Area. I feel like at best I would be hiring Google and Facebook's like rejects or something. Like it, yeah. that just seems like a tough place to be, man. You know, look, I think uh, I, I think some of those uh, perceptions are true in that it is extremely competitive. Um, but I think there are certain dynamics. So I'll just give you two examples, right? So, uh, 
you know, previous world, I was a, a manager leading a really, really large team and, and really trying to build out a really, you know, massive engineering organization. And it's extremely hard to compete with the Googles, the Facebooks, the, you know, yeah. the, the Twitters, et cetera, uh, in that, in that area. That said, if you are, you know, now that we're a smaller startup, um, it's a little bit easier because you're sort of not fighting the same battle. Yes, you're, you're always finding the, you know, the battle for talent, but um, when you're a mission-driven company like ours, when you are the size that we are and you have the opportunity to give people to be a part of something that's you know, going to be really, really big, uh, not just in terms of the company, but also the impact it can have on others, you have an allure there that's different than, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a more established company. There's not and just so a I cog we, in a wheel at a big company anymore. Correct. Yeah. And you get the chance to come in uh, and be part of something at the ground floor. Mm-hmm. And everybody who joins at this point has a huge impact on the culture, has a huge impact on the on the outcome of the team. And so I think when you are someone who's looking for that in your career, you'll find that at a smaller startup uh, like ours. And so we've benefited from that. That said, you know, we're not the only, uh, by far, uh, we're not the only startup. Not the only in the startup area. in so, Silicon Valley, are you? <laughs> correct. Yeah. So you've got this huge competition. But I also think that being mission driven, the impact that we're trying to have for yeah. the average American uh, carries weight. But, you know, that doesn't answer, that doesn't solve all the problems. You, you still have to find quality engineers. You still have to find quality talent. And that is is a, is a big challenge, big challenge. Um by the very nature of how we grew as a company during the pandemic, we've had to be fully remote. So yeah, while we ask. have a nucleus of people here in in uh, in the Bay Area, we have resources. Uh, we have team members that are you know on the East Coast. We have them in the South. We have them in uh, Ohio. Um, and then we've also very very early on leveraged um, uh, teams that are based out of India or South America sure. to really help us build out the 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 platform that we needed to build out. So that's been something we've used a mix of that from the very, very beginning of how we started the company. You know, it's the, the pandemic has has really changed the game and a lot of the stuff. You know, I, I would be one of the first people to say three or four years ago, I never would have thought of having a remote workforce, right? Like I expect everybody, everybody be in the office and all that stuff. And, 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 and in that mode, when you have one or two employees that are remote, it's always like an us versus them thing. Like everybody's, you know, together and you have like the one random person who's not in the office. And they always kind of get left out, right? That's Where right. the pandemic really changed everything. It's like overnight, everybody is remote. And especially for for startups like yourself, it makes it so much easier to say, look, boundaries don't matter anymore. Where can we find, you know, whatever positions we need anywhere in the US or even globally? And that really helps dramatically of, of changing the game to find talent. And uh, I imagine that that I mean, did you ever work remote before or or was that a mind, mindset no, change right. for you it's, too? It's exactly as you said. So, you know, prior to the pandemic, working remote always felt like I was slacking off or I wasn't being as productive as I should. There was this sort mm-hmm. of just mindset of like, you got to be in the office, you got to be the team. Uh, but the pandemic ch- changed that. And I have been really impressed with how productive, you know, the entire team has been. And we are all remote, right? We yeah. don't have a, an office. Everybody works uh, remotely. We've been extremely productive. And it, we've seen a huge amount of benefits come from that, as you just mentioned. Um, but I think the other thing that we want to make sure that, from my perspective, you got to keep an eye on is how do you really build a culture, though? How do you build that that team and that sort of cohesiveness amongst the team if everybody is remote? 
right? You get a lot of, you know, when you're in a, in a, uh, an office setting, you get a lot of the people going to the water cooler, you get people getting lunch together. There's just a lot of that sort of camaraderie that gets built, uh, by being in the same spot. How do you do that in that area? And that's something that we continue to sort of work on and, and focus on as a team. Well, and I know we, we tried that at Stackify and then after we were acquired at Netro and it's like, oh, let's have a, a happy hour and everybody get on Zoom. And it's like, that's the last damn thing anybody wants to do is get right? on another Zoom call. And, it, and, right. it's, and it's like people had, uh, you know, different trade shows and conferences and, and all these webinars and, and stuff in the early days of the, uh, the pandemic. It's like the last thing anybody wants to do is go to a virtual trade show on freaking Zoom. <laughs> that's right. Like, I've been on Zoom all damn day for meetings. The last thing I want to do is go to another freaking Zoom call. So it, that's been really tough. I mean, it's hard to create that that culture and teamwork and whatever uh, remote. And that, and that is, I think, by far one of the biggest struggles. And, you know, we had some employees that, quite frankly, after a while said, you know what, I want to go back to an office. And we had a couple of yeah. people that left. They're like, oh, I had an opportunity to go work at XNX company and they're not working remote anymore. And for some people, it's just a, it's a personality culture thing where, you know, they have to be in the office. And then you got a lot of other people that at the same time are quitting companies because they're being forced to go back. Right. So it, it's going both ways. And um, it, it's, it's going to be interesting to see like five to 10 years from now, how does remote work, you know, you know, how does this, this trend change and, and keep going? And do we eventually revert back where like remote doesn't exist anymore? I have a feeling this is going to be a perpetual change. Unless we all get forced to work in the metaverse, uh, I really have no interest in working in the metaverse, um, by the way. So I quit if I get forced to do that. Me neither. <laughs> yeah, I, that's the last thing I want to be doing in the metaverse is, is working, to be honest I, with I don't you. Want to, I don't want to log into the metaverse to then join a Zoom call. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Please If no. that's my future, yeah. I quit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah, you can take me off that list as well. Um, <laughs> no, I agree. I think, I think it'll be, um, I think this will have lasting impacts as well. I think uh you know fundamentally it's it's uh opened up a whole new way for people to engage uh remotely and i think you'll see a lot of that stick around um from here on out so you know since you're in silicon valley i, I love kind of um asking questions specific to that if that's okay but um, cause I'm, I'm based in kansas city i'm in flyover country so y'all just fly over me and i'm just down here working um, but, um, I'm curious, you know, we know the cost of living is, is higher out there and we know recruiting engineering is, is tough out there. And, um, but there's also a lot of, a lot more talent out there. So like in Kansas city, if I want to hire a director of product or somebody in marketing that has deep experience in SaaS or certain, you know, certain types of talents that are harder to find too. So, I mean, what, what are, what have been some of the big positives to being in Oakland? Like some of the your customers and partnerships and stuff that you have or, or some of those right down the street and that made it a lot easier. I'm just kind of curious. Well, um, I think with Oakland, it was one of these things where it was, um, it felt like it was the perfect fit for us and it's not gonna be the same for every company, but, uh, you know, myself, my co-founder had worked in San Francisco for, for several years, you know, love San Francisco. Uh, but it's, it's it's a different environment, and when you when you think about the broader Bay Area, you know you want to have an area that's pretty easy to get to for for folks. You want to have an area that people, um, uh, you know, if they want to be in a city in a in a very very sort of very urban environment, they can get to that very quickly. Yet at the same time, if they want to be in a suburban environment, they can get to that quickly. 
and Oakland was just sort of that that perfect mix of that, right? So, you know, you're you know stones throw away from being in downtown San Francisco. You've also got a pretty uh, amazing and, and thriving culture here in, in Oakland, but at the same time, you can get to anywhere sort of in the East Bay or South Bay within thirty to forty five minutes, mm-hmm. which for us was was pretty important when we thought about you know the reach. Uh, that we need to have the recruiting capabilities, um, and then just sort of the the early leadership team that we form. You know, myself, I'm I'm here in Oakland. My co-founder is down in uh, the San Jose area, uh, and so for us, it just worked out really well that way. Yeah, and I'm I'm not an expert at California geography, but um, as as a Kansas City guy, you can ex- you can expect I don't know much about California geography, but I do know those cities, um, yeah. <laughs> and I know that based on traffic, they may all be eight hours apart from each other or not. <laughs> uh, yeah. At any given point in time. Yeah. 30 minutes can turn into three hours. Yeah. Well, once again, I just want to remind everybody today's episode is brought to you by full scale, um, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. You know, one other thing I was thinking about earlier in regards to um, your guys's company, are your, are you focused only on the United States market or is this technology you can take to other countries? It's predominantly in the United States. I think ultimately we see this as a global company, uh, but for for the immediate future, it's going to be based in the United States. the The United States has, you know, some very interesting characteristics and traits when it comes to household debt that mm-hmm. aren't exactly the same, you know, in every other country. And so it's not like you can kind of just take it and say, "Hey, th- what what works here in the U.S. is going to work everywhere else." Um, so that's why our focus is really on the United States. Now, as we grow and as we expand, there are absolutely use cases that apply, uh, in other countries. And so we definitely plan to support that, you know, as we grow, but for this first, for the foreseeable future, we're really going to be focused on the United States and making sure that we really build a robust, um, you know, platform that supports all the needs that we see here first. So as, as a lot of listeners probably know, you know, at, at full scale, we have over a couple hundred employees in the Philippines and. You know, it's it's fascinating to compare there to, you know, what, what we do in the United States. Like in the Philippines, they don't really have credit reports and a lot of that kind of stuff. Like this doesn't even exist. Like the, the concept of having a credit report and a credit score, that's not a thing. So it's like, you know, certain things that, you know, your, your guys' company is trying to solve, like in their market, I don't even think would be possible. I don't even know. So um, yeah, interesting to see right. as you guys, you'll see different use cases, different needs in, in different countries, yeah. um, different types of consumer debt. Right. Uh, right. And different ratios. And so that's why we want to make sure that, you know, we we really focus on how to build great products. Uh, and we think we can do that here first. And then ultimately, we'll yeah. be expanding to the country. Well, the U.S. is a big market, so no no it reason to, to rush off. I think what you could find, though, is you you get some big companies you're working with. Right. Like it could be somebody like a Microsoft or GE or whoever it is that has a global footprint. And they might be like, how do you how do we take this and adopt this? worldwide and then maybe it's a good problem to solve then but you'll no, you'll get there and i think as you said i think one of the best ways to to grow into those markets is when you have a customer pull you or customers pull yeah. you into those right best way to do that is when you have someone who's willing to pay for it and wanting to do that uh, you typically have a much better product when you enter that market that way so my notes here it shows that you guys have raised some capital i don't i don't know if this was a uh, public information or not. you you guys have raised raised some some capital yeah, uh, we, we, it's public. We raised uh, just over eleven million dollars uh, at the in March of twenty twenty one. So did you guys? Uh, did you guys? Uh, was that a Series A? 
No, it was a seed uh, seed round. So uh, we had done uh, that seed round. That was our essentially, um, you know, first infusion of of capital. Uh, we were really excited about that. Really excited about the investors that we were able to bring on board uh, through that those seed rounds. And um, yeah, it's been critical for the progress that we've made to date. So a lot of our listeners, you know, that are following in, in our footsteps, right? Like their goal is to get where you're at and, and raise capital and and so I think a lot of people are always curious as to what that process was like and was, I don't know if you have any, anything to share about the, the troubles and tribulations of, of raising that money or, or was it an easier thing to do since you were in Oakland or in your background or. Yeah. I, um, I never found it easy. Uh, I, for me, uh, and my co-founder, um, I think we, we wanted to optimize for two things. One is we we wanted to optimize for uh, investors that we really wanted to be a part of our journey. And at, at an early stage, especially with a seed round, you know, one piece advice I think you know you know it's out there um, is that you know the investors you bring on at that stage, it's going to be like a you know like a marriage almost, right? Yeah, like, it's going to be for ten years, and these are other human beings that you want to have around you. Uh, in times when you, you know, at your highest highs and your lowest lows as a company. And that's really what we wanted to, to optimize for. And so when we were out there raising funds, we got, uh, both, I think, um, we got lucky and, uh, you know, we sort of also created a little bit of our own luck there, but we, we ended up with investors that really care about the mission that we're on. They care about the, you know, how we do it as well as what we do. Uh, and we got really excited about that. So very, very thrilled. You know, I, I think it's, um, you know, fundraising, you could have a whole entire, you know, couple, I'm sure you have probably a couple dozen podcasts uh, oh, yeah. you guys on, on fundraising itself. Um, but it was, I don't, I don't think it was necessarily easy. It can be, you know, stressful. Um, uh, but I think that if you're focused on, you know, a big problem and you have uh, a good product that obviously makes it a lot easier. So had you guys already uh, built the product and and had some customers before you raised capital or? Yeah, we did. That was, that was important for us uh, for two reasons. One, we knew that that would make the fundraising process earlier, but even just for ourselves, when we took a step back and, and saw ourselves as, as the primary investors, right? We were investing our own time and money yeah. and all of this. Um, we had to be confident that this is something that was going to actually be a product that people would pay for. Right. Uh, and then it would work and they would use. And so before we decided to raise any money, we knew we wanted to have a product and market, um, an MVP, and have a customer already signed up and was paying for it. For us, that was the litmus test to determine whether or not, for us and for ourselves, is this something that we're really, that's going to be worth spending our time and money on before we ask anybody else to do that. Yeah, and I think that's a key thing for everybody to hear. And as a potential investor myself, that's what I would want to see too. It's like I want to see that you've proven that you know you can build this thing and that people will pay for it and there's a market for it. You know. It's so much more riskier to invest in something. You're like, I don't know, maybe this is going to work. We're going to find out after I spend all your money. Yeah, <laughs> it's never as never as good of an idea. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not in certain certain. You know, we were lucky in the sense that we could do that. There's obviously certain markets that's really hard to do that, where you know you you actually need the, the capital before you can build yeah. like a, a a minimal Bible product. But I think in most cases you you can if you find a way and and sometimes it's a, a creative way of doing it. But I agree with you. It's it's finding a way to actually prove it to yourself uh, and de-risk it for yourself and your investors. 
and then you know usually good things will happen. So one thing I'm curious about, if you don't mind me asking, is how do your customers pay for your product? Yeah. So, so it, I mean, is it you know based on the number of employees that have access to it, or I'm just kind of curious. And, and I know for so, some people, how you price your product is always a, its own like science and, and magic, and pricing yeah. and packaging is always f- a fun problem. Yeah, and candidly, this is something that we're we haven't uh, optimized uh, at all. Um, so yeah, I think we'll we'll continue to to work on it. But what we thought worked best for us was to have uh, our revenue tied to value creation. And the best way that we could kind of measure or, or determine value creation was based on usage. So uh, we're, we're an API-based platform. And so the way that our customers pay us essentially is through the usage of the APIs um, and then the access to the, the, the data that we provide to the platform. And those are the two key ways that we drive uh, you know, revenue for ourselves. Um, and usually aligns really well with our customers as well, right? Because then that means that they're paying for the value that they're getting out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what felt sort of like, uh, the best way to align our value and our revenue with, uh, what the customers and our, our partners are getting out of it. So it's, just, so it's based on the number of API transactions. Yeah. Basically. Predominantly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it seems like that has become much more of a common business model over the last several years where, um, you know, and even at, at my last company, Stackify, we, we didn't charge exactly that way, but it was sort of that way, where it was a volume-based, you know, kind of pricing. And and there's definitely a lot of companies these days that have that sort of volume-based API type, you know, amount of data, amount of API calls, like that type of pricing model has become uh, more and more common. But to, to my point earlier, like how you package and price your product can be by far one of the most complicated things. Oh, and for it sure. Can, and it can also be the death of the company if you don't get it the right way. For sure, for sure. And it's it's a really difficult problem. And at Stackify, it was a big problem for us because we had, you know, one platform, but we had like five different products and they all had different kinds of data and different value that they provided and all this kind of stuff. But it didn't make sense to have like five different pricing categories and levers. Nobody could understand how much the product was going to cost. And and it's always a difficult problem to solve. So um, no, you're do- right. We, we went through similar, you know, scenarios too. I think the, the thing that helped us the most though, was we asked our customers, we said, Hey, yeah. you know, h- how do you value this? How would you put, you know, uh, the value on this that you would to drive, you know, your decision to pay for this or not. And that helped. Right. And you ask enough of them, you kind of get some boundaries as to, you know, what's the upper bound, maybe what's the lower bound. And that helped us understand that. So for example, we don't charge for every single API call today, right? There's certain API calls that are tied, you know, sure. more directly towards the value that our partners are going to see. And so that's why we've, we focus on those and others, they can call as many times as they want and they get it for free. Uh, so you're right. And look, as I said, we're still in the process of, of, of working through this as we, you know, drive new capabilities and oh, yeah. more, uh, more aspects to the platform. It's going to be an ongoing thing for us. And I think it's one of those things where you'll always be optimizing your pricing um, based on, on the market and, and how you can actually bring value to it. It's one of those fun problems as a SaaS company that, uh, nobody ever expects to have, like they never think about that as being a problem. That's right. Yeah. They think about, you know, signing up customers and raising capital, all this stuff, but then you may spend the most amount of your time sitting in a room, staring at each other and arguing about pricing, packaging and stuff. (laughs) It's it's just really, it's just really funny. I've, I've been there so many times at my, 
my first company, Vin Solutions, we sold a, a software platform to car dealers and we had like 27 different pricing packages and it was, and it was sort of designed like, okay, you get this for $400, but for another hundred, you get this and another hundred, yeah. you get this. And like, you kind of walk them up. Right. And eventually they're spending like $3,000 a month. And I thought they, they started like 200 and, and maybe that was part of the science of, of getting them up, but just pricing and packaging. My point is just always an interesting, interesting. No, it is. It, it is. And it's a, it's a, it's a discipline, you know, within your organization that you need to, to focus on. It doesn't just sort of happen. One of my favorite lines as a software developer was, uh, it, it was my, it was my job to make you happy no matter what it cost you. And so I would always tell people that on the calls. Like I, if I was talking to a customer, I'd be like, I don't know, man, it's my job just to make you happy. It doesn't really matter what it costs. <laughs> like, I'm point. just the engineer. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I like that one. Yeah, that's good. Well, I really appreciate having you on, um, having you on today, and thanks for being my my first guest as my uh, yeah, man, solo hosting honored. days. And I feel um, honored. Thank you so much for giving that opportunity. And you know, a lot of times we end our episodes with what we call the founder freestyle, and just you know, do you have any fi- final parting words, um, tips, suggestions, uh, battle scars to tell people about, or? From Mike's a, from a founder's perspective, yeah, yeah, I think. Um, so, I took a path where I actually had a, a, a pretty lengthy corporate career before I started my first company, and uh, throughout that entire time, I always was wrestling with whether or not I should start my own company or I should continue my my career, my corporate path. And when my co-founder and I decided to start our first company. Um, probably best decision I've ever made. And, you know, the advice or the the perspective I can lend to others in this who are thinking about it is do it. You will learn so much uh, in so short amount of time um, that the growth you experience from that is well worth uh, the, uh, the time and effort you put into it. Now, you know, granted, there's, you got to be smart about it. You can't you know, waste all your time on on money on something that that's not going to pan out. Mm-hmm. But, um, but, you know, taking that plunge was really important. And I think uh, one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. Yeah, being an entrepreneur can be such a, a rewarding, uh, rewarding thing. So, and For as, sure. we, as, as I've always joked at this point, I don't think I'm employable. Like, I think I will <laughs> forever be an entrepreneur. Um, you know, after my last company was acquired, I, I tried being employable for a while and that didn't, it didn't work very well for me. Changes your perspective, doesn't it? It is totally different. Yep. Yeah. Um, well, thanks again for being on the show today. And again, we've got Tomas Campos from Spinwheel. And um, really appreciate having you on the on the show. And um, thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, we'll see you next week. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Bye-bye. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.